You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Welcome to Domecast, where we talk about the week in North Carolina state politics. I'm Jordan Schrader, hosting this week, and with me are Andy Spey, Lauren Horsch, Colin Campbell, and special guest Brian Murphy, who joins us from D.C. Today he's in Raleigh, uh, down here to uh, see some candidates out on the campaign trail uh, as we get started in the general election campaign. Um, we've got some things to talk about with the ballot and how the ballot's shaping up for the fall elections, but first let's start with Brian and uh, what's going on with the congressional races. So you've, there's some outside money coming in to some of the key races. There are, um, we're sort of learning which ones are likely to, uh, or at least possible to flip. Um, catch us up to speed. What do you think are the, are the big congressional races this year in North Carolina? The three that are getting the most attention uh, on a national level are, are North Carolina 2, uh, which is you know the Wake County and, and suburbs, uh, currently represented by Republican George Holding. It's sort of a firewall district, I think, for Republicans. If this blue wave... Uh, the Democrats are hoping for is as big as it could be. Uh, those are the kind of districts that that may fall, and Republicans are trying to do everything they can to kind of stop that uh, in its tracks. And so, uh, the Congressional Leadership Fund, a, a leadership pack dedicated to keeping the majority for the Republicans, are putting an office in North Carolina too to try to help George Holding uh, make sure he's not part of a kind of a wave election. I think that's what it would take to get Linda Coleman elected, but. Um, there's a lot of polling out there that, that, you know, if Democrats were to win by 10 or 11 points nationwide, that could put that district in play. The two that are really in play are, are North Carolina 9, which is Charlotte area district, had been represented by Robert Pittenger, is currently represented by Robert Pittenger, uh, a Republican who lost in the primary to Mark Harris, a, a Baptist pastor. He's running against Dan McCready, a Marine veteran um, who has started a solar company. Uh, McCready has a lot of money. Uh, Harris doesn't. Um, and McCready has, you know, is sort of a moderate Democrat, or at least that's how he's portraying himself. And uh, he, he got more votes in the primary than all the Republicans put together. Um, he actually leads in some polling that's been put out by Civitas. Um, and so the leadership fund, the Congressional Leadership Fund, is also going into that district and trying to help Mark Harris uh, get on his feet in that district. And that's a district that Pittenger won by about 10 points. And now McCready is leading. And so that's that's one of these districts where Democrats are feeling pretty good about the possibility of flipping. And then the other one is, is suburban Greensboro, North Carolina 13. Ted Budd is a first-term Republican uh, representative out of that district. He's running against Kathy Manning, a prolific fundraiser, someone who's given lots and lots of money to Democratic candidates throughout the years, including Nancy Pelosi, who she's vowed not to support for speaker. Um, Ted Budd leads in polling in that district, but is being outraised by Kathy Manning. And again, outside money is pouring into that district as well, trying to portray Kathy Manning as, as a Pelosi disciple, as someone who's far too liberal for the district, um, and also raise the name recognition of Ted Budd, who in his first term hasn't made a ton of news out of D.C., and so is trying to hold on to that district. He won a 17-way primary uh, two years ago and in 2016, and so you know hasn't built up a ton of name recognition at this point. 
Kevy Manning is the challenger there, and she's trying to distance herself from Nancy Pelosi, right? Yeah, she's come out at least twice, including on Independence Day, with a blog post saying she would not support Nancy Pelosi. Just this week, uh, she released her first television ads of the general election saying, again, that she will not vote for Nancy Pelosi. Um, national Republican groups have pointed out, of course she's going to vote for Nancy Pelosi if it comes down to Nancy Pelosi against the Republican to be Speaker. Um, it's interesting, you know, I, I'm assuming what Manning means is she won't vote for Pelosi when it's between two Democrats. Um, if it does get to the point where it's Pelosi against uh, a Republican to be Speaker and Democrats have the majority, I would expect Manning and McCready and many of these Democrats across the na nation who have said we won't vote for Nancy Pelosi to go ahead and vote for her uh, rather than letting some Republican win uh, Speaker of the House. That is, if the Democrats are to take it, you know, the vote is by the entire House. Um, and so whoever gets the most votes, you know, the majority of votes would be the Speaker of the House. An interesting thing is happening to the South in South Carolina. Jim Clyburn, uh, you know, who's the same age as Nancy Pelosi, I believe he's 78, as uh, a member of the Congressional Black Caucus, is sort of the leading, uh, one of the leading black members of the House, has announced that if Pelosi doesn't have the votes, he is going to run for Speaker, um, which would set up an interesting dynamic because... A Democrat probably cannot win Speaker of the House without support of the Congressional Black Caucus. And if they were to band together and say that Clyburn is their person, it, it would be an interesting, it would set up an interesting race probably between him and Steny Hoyer or another Democrat if, if there's a younger Democrat willing to run for Speaker of the House. On the other side, are Republicans embracing Trump or are they running away from Trump? Um, what is George Holding and Ted Budd and... Um, and Mark Harris, who's not an incumbent, but uh, what do they do for a strategy? Yeah, I think they're trying to tie themselves to, to President Trump. Um, he's very popular among Republicans. They know they need those voters to turn out. Um, Ted Budd, Mark Harris, George Holding have all tied themselves to the, to the Republican tax cuts that passed uh, late last year. Um, they've gotten some mixed polling. Certainly the economy is doing well, and they're trying to take credit for that, saying that the tax cuts have, have played a role in that. Democrats have tried to portray the tax cuts as, as tax cuts for the wealthy, for the 1%, and tried to say the reason deficits are soaring or we don't have money for other things is because of these tax cuts. Right now, polling seems pretty split on it. Um, they haven't been the huge boon that I think Republicans wanted. They also haven't been sort of an albatross that Democrats were hoping for. But uh, George Holding helped write that tax bill as a, as a member of the Ways and Means Committee. Ted Budd supported it and, and talks about it constantly. Mark Harris and conversations I've had with his campaign have touted the, the tax cut. So I think that's an issue you're going to see Republicans run on. Um, and, and you can't distance yourself from Trump um, if you're going to run on, on the Trump tax cuts. Mark Harris, who was running in a district from uh, basically from Charlotte to uh, near Fayetteville, um, has made some speeches in the past uh, that have come up. And you've written about those lately. Uh, what did he have to say about women? Yeah, he, these are some old sermons. Uh, the one that came out a couple months ago talked about um, women's place in society and the fact that um, he believes, you know, in, that the Bible teaches that, that women should be at, at home working in the, um, in the home and not out in the workplace and that they're raising a generation of daughters who are going to um, regret or um, be unhappy that the, the fact that their mother wasn't home. Um, recently, some sermons have surfaced uh, talking about uh, the women, the role of women in a marriage, that they should be uh, submissive to their husbands, they should submit to their husbands, um, 
You know, that, that's sort of a biblical teaching, especially evangelical. It's straight out of the Bible. He, he was clear to say that submit doesn't mean that you're inferior to, um, but it's, it's hard to read it some other ways. It's inter- it'll be interesting to see how that plays in the district. Um, Harris is not running away from the fact that he's a Baptist pastor. And McCready has who has his own conversion story talking he talks about being uh, baptized in the euphrates river with his uh, mates in the marines um has, has been careful not to sit not to slam harris's religion obviously uh, there's a lot of people who believe um who are baptists who, a lot of evangelicals in that district um, who helped get harris the nomination so it, it'll be a tricky line i think for both of them to walk uh, harris doesn't want to turn off um you know, people who aren't as strong in their faith or who have maybe a more modern interpretation. And on the other hand, McCready doesn't want to turn off, um, you know, people who go to, go to church regularly and, and attend and, and believe um, in a more literal translation of the Bible. So it's, it's an inter- it'll set up an interesting dynamic in that race. Okay. And uh, some of the national pundits have rated that race uh, in the Charlotte area toss-up. So um, that could be the, the most competitive race going forward. Yeah, I think that's certainly one to watch. If you're going to watch any North Carolina race, that, that might be the one. Let's talk a little bit about uh, state politics and what's on the ballot uh, this fall. And there's a lot of uncertainty because everything's tied up in court. Um, but we did get a ruling um, that says that um, Chris Anglin, who's running for the North Carolina Supreme Court, can uh, appear on the ballot with an R next to his name for Republican. Um, so why was that a controversy, Colin, and, uh, and why did a judge uh, step in to say that he could? Yeah, so background on Anglin, if you uh, have not been following his case, he is a Democrat-turned-Republican running for NC Supreme Court. He's not backed by the Republican Party. They're backing the incumbent, uh, Justice Barbara Jackson, um, and sort of he, he's running sort of in a, in a bit of a loophole that was created by the lack of partisan primaries this year. So uh, people who are running in the general election are, are running with different party affiliations, and there's a lot of concerns about uh, what having two Republicans and a Democrat on the ballot does to the chances of the Republicans to win if their votes get split. So the legislature passed a law um, preventing him from running or anyone who uh, changed parties 90 days before uh, filing for election from running with their name on the ballot, with their party on the ballot. So uh, this law would take a Republican label off of uh, Anglin's name as well as some party labels off of a couple of uh, other judicial candidates further down the ballot who were uh, sort of less targeted by that. Anyway, Anglin sued uh, and he got a sort of preliminary uh, win in his lawsuit uh, with the judge ruling earlier this week uh, that the ballot should be printed with Republican next to his name, uh, sort of invalidating that particular law. Uh, now the legislative leaders have uh, filed an appeal with the State Court of Appeals, uh, so it's likely that this is a situation that for at least a few more days or a few more weeks uh, isn't going to get permanently resolved, but for now um, Anglin is winning um, and the legislature is uh, not at all happy about that. Um, so that's one lawsuit, but that's one of um, I think a total of five, because Anglin was rolled in with a lawsuit by a either district or superior court candidate in Wake County who had gone from being a Republican to a Democrat, and she was also suing to keep uh, the Democrat label on her name. Right, and then we have the, at least two lawsuits suing over the constitutional amendments that are on the ballot. There are six of them, and uh, there are lawsuits taking aim at at least four of them. Um, so uh, the NAACP and some environmental groups have sued over four of them, and um, Governor Cooper has sued um, over the two that would strip him of some power and give it to the legislature. Um, so what's the latest in those lawsuits? Yeah, so that one uh, went, uh, both of those lawsuits were held, uh, heard in front of a three-judge 
uh, panel of uh, Superior Court judges on uh, Wednesday of this week. Um, and they did not issue a ruling yet. They're going to get a few more briefs in from the lawyers, uh, take a few more days or a week or so uh, before they issue their ruling on um, whether these constitutional amendments can stay on the ballot this year or whether uh, there was enough of a uh, legal issue with uh, the process of getting them on the ballot uh, that they would have to be taken off and the ballots be prevent, pre uh, would be printed without some of these constitutional amendments. Uh, but they did delay the printing of ballots while this goes on. They recognize that uh, no matter who they rule in favor of in this lawsuit, there probably will be appeal. It will probably end up going to the state Supreme Court. Uh, and that's the sort of thing that's going to take time. So uh, for the time being, uh, the State Board of Elections has been prevented from uh, beginning the process of printing ballots until at least September 1st. That sort of pushes back the timeline for uh, voting by mail absentee ballot, which typically would start on September 7th. Um, this year will probably start sometime later in September uh, with that delay in the printing of ballots. So if you're the sort of person who uh, likes to vote via mail on the first possible day you can two months out from the election, uh, this is not going to be your year. You're going to have to wait a little bit uh, until all of these uh, lawsuits are resolved. But the, uh, the key questions for the judges um, in these cases, there's sort of two separate issues. From, from Cooper's side, they're arguing that the wording of the ballot language is so misleading and designed to uh, encourage uh, voters to support these measures uh, that uh, it can't be uh, considered a valid uh, constitutional referendum. Cooper, while he disagrees with these changes that would pretty drastically shift power of appointment and other things from him towards the legislature, uh, he's saying his lawsuit is just about more process than whether these are a good idea or not, uh, but that the only remedy at this stage is to completely uh, take these two amendments off the ballot. Uh, the NAACP and environmental group are in a separate lawsuit that also challenges several of the other amendments, uh, voter ID, tax cap, uh, that sort of thing. And their challenge is that the legislature, because it's uh, been ruled to have been elected in unconstitutionally gerrymandered districts, does not have the authority to create um, any sort of uh, constitutional amendment question on the ballot. So that's sort of a separate issue. Uh, I think, honestly, Cooper probably has a more likely case with the judge than this, this second lawsuit, but uh, certainly anything's possible by the time the, the judges rule on this. We've also started seeing some uh, grassroots campaigns against the amendments, Andy, and uh, one of them uh, is by a guy named James Protzman, who uh, once ran for governor uh, as a Democrat, and uh, he runs a blog called Blue NC, and he's been passing out yard signs against the amendments, um, saying to vote against all six. Uh, we're starting to see those pop up. He's also been sharing um, some descriptions uh, that he wrote of the amendments around on the internet, and we've seen them get pretty wide distribution. Even the um, chairman of the state Democratic Party, Wayne Goodwin, shared them. So it's kind of got um, what I guess he thinks is like the worst case scenario for each amendment. And the one on the crime victims amendment, which would protect, uh, would add constitutional protections um, for victims of felony crimes, um, was kind of particularly stood out. And so you fact checked it. Um, so what did he say in that description of the amendment? Right. He made this poster that uh, was popular in liberal circles, and uh, it had some interesting claims on it. Like, like you mentioned, one of them was about uh, the hunting and fishing amendment, and he said it would allow people to shoot dogs and cats in the streets, um, which we did not fact check. Uh, the victim's rights one, also known as the Marcy's Law Amendment, has to do with... Uh, court proceedings and alerting the family and the victims of the uh, families of victims about when uh, 
alleged or accused criminals are um, going to court, when they're released from jail, when they're moved, all this sort of stuff. And so he claimed, um, and there's no uh, uh, eloquent way to transition here, that the bill, that the amendment would pave the way for making abortion illegal in North Carolina. And um, if that sounds out of the blue, it's because it, it is out of the blue. Um, there's no mention of reproductive rights or abortion or anything of that nature in this amendment. Um, and you talked to some experts who basically said, at least one expert basically said, that hasn't really been brought up in all the other states that have passed things like this, right? Right. More background to Marcy's Law, which Colin has written about, is that it's pushed by a national group, and um, it's gone through what several states have adopted uh, these, um, these rights into their constitutions. And Marcy's Law is a, is a big advocacy group. They often wear purple shirts. You'll probably see them out at the polls when you vote vote um and uh they tell the story about um the family of marcy and uh how uh they were uh surprised when they ran into her alleged uh killer at the grocery store and didn't know that he was out on bail or out of prison whatever um so we talked to experts and we said has there ever been any change in abortion laws as a result of Marcy's Law, or the Victims' Rights Amendment. And they said, no, what are you talking about? <laughs> uh, they, in theory, it could um, possibly, the Victims' Rights Law could apply to an abortion case, but that's not what uh, Mr. Protzman was saying. He said it would make abortion illegal or pave the way. Uh, but the experts we spoke to saw no legal path for an amendment that deals with court proceedings and alerts to somehow affect um, laws related to abortion and reproductive rights, which are protected by the United States Constitution and um, that famous ruling Roe v. Wade. So uh, Mr. Protzman and his Blue and C blog got a pants on fire from us. The, the rare pants on fire rating. Right. Yeah. He, I, I saw him on his uh, Facebook page uh, criticizing the edit, uh, the um, PolitiFact based on the grounds that, well, what happens if uh, the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade, which I think the answer to that is then the legislature can enact any sort of abortion ban at once without going through the state constitution right. at all. They don't have to use the Marcy's Law Amendment to do that. So. <laughs> right. There can't be protections for victims of crime unless there's a crime. So they would have to create a new crime, right? Correct. And there, it, doesn't, it really doesn't make sense for... Mr. Prosman was very nice and um, is very distrusting of uh, Republican leadership. Um, but they would not need to use this amendment as a vehicle for any of their um, anti-abortion agendas. So. Um, okay. Andy, lastly, on the constitutional amendments, uh, you went to a uh, very rare, um, maybe historic gathering this week uh, of the five living former governors, all in opposition to the two constitutional amendments dealing with the governor's powers. Um, so what did they have to say? They said that, and what they called an unprecedented um, event at the old Capitol, that the, the two proposed amendments that deal with the governor's office were an attempt to essentially steal power uh, and take it from the governor's office and give it to the legislature. 
they said rarely this was uh rarely has there ever been uh, a group of former governors so united for one thing uh they're bipartisan group there are three democrats and two republicans um the uh democrats being bev purdue mike easley uh and jim hunt who was also there and then uh republicans being jim martin and pat mccrory and the republicans martin and mccrory actually had some of the most pointed comments uh for their fellow republicans in the legislature saying you know mccrory said don't hijack our hijack our constitution if you want these powers to appoint uh, uh, people to these commissions, which one of the amendments uh, deals with, um, or judicial vacancies. Uh, he said, don't hijack the constitution, have the courage to run for governor. And uh, it was a really uh, historic moment because, um, Colin, you looked into this, the last time that all living governors got together for something was 1996, and uh, not surprisingly, it was also an issue about uh, the governor's powers. In 96, uh, then-Governor Jim Hunt was pushing for uh, North Carolina governors to have veto powers, which they hadn't had up until then, and making them a particularly weak governor. Uh, and so to support that, at that time, there were four living former governors, uh, Bob Scott, Terry Sanford, Jim Holzhauser, and Jim Martin, two Republicans, two Dems. They came together sort of in a similar fashion to, to back the veto, but that was uh, 22 years ago, and mm -hmm. I don't think we've had anything like this since. The uh, Republican leadership, uh, Speaker Moore and Senate uh, leader Phil Berger came out with a statement uh, saying that they, that the effort um, both on, with both amendments uh, that the governors are protesting. Uh, it, the amendments are an effort to add more checks and balances, which uh, <laughs> the governors obviously uh, cast it in a different light. They say this strips, this erodes, you know, uh, the separation of powers between, you know, the legislature and the executive branch. So it, it felt very historic. Uh, Colin and Lauren and I were there, you know, the press sat in these old uh, these antique desks and the governor shuffled in and uh, patted each other on the back and had kind words and laughed and um, it was very unique um, and Jim Martin said that it was sort of an organic thing where they happened to all be calling each other just to to uh, you know shoot the bull and say can you believe this is happening can you believe this is happening and then eventually one of them I think it was Martin said well we should do something about it and um, that's how they ended up at the Capitol on Monday. And they held a meeting and I believe afterwards agreed to try to raise some money and maybe we'll see some uh, TV ads uh, from the former governors talking about these two constitutional amendments. Yeah, what and they also filed a friend of the court brief in Cooper's lawsuit uh, challenging those two amendments. Right. Uh, and Governor Martin even suggested that uh, they might try to have the strategy of putting McCrory and Cooper up on TV together and saying, you know, we don't agree on much, but we agree that these are bad. And um, so we could the be The odd couple. The odd couple. <laughs> well, they even, they even said during that event that, you know, how often do, you know, governors of, you know, both parties get, get up and stick it to the same issue? And, I mean, Andy described the event as dope. So, I mean, it really... It, it was cool. It yeah, was really you don't. Cool. In, in some of these governors, you don't see that much in public anymore. I mean, Bev Perdue and, and Mike Easley both had some scandals towards the end of their terms and uh, have kept sort of a low profile over the years. Uh, so it's, you know, it's probably the first time I've ever seen Mike Easley give a speech because I came into covering politics well after he'd left office. Well, and 
the Republicans hit Bev Perdue and Mike Easley on those and scandals. LaCroix. Yeah, really hard. The only after- one they couldn't find a scandal for was Jim Martin, and that's probably because he was in office in the 80s, and they art news articles from them aren't on the internet. Yeah, they even before the event, David Lewis and Ralph Hise, who are both you know ranking members of the House and Senate, you know, sent out this like scathing email of just you know here are the seven great ethical like stories from the governors and included scandals from Bev Perdue, Mike Easley, McCrory, and then some Cooper stuff as well. It was insane. It's definitely it, a it long time yeah. tension between these two branches of government, even when they're the same. Party. I mean, we think of it now as this partisan battle because you've got a Democrat in the governor's office and Republicans leading the legislature. But there was a lot of tension under McCrory, including some court battles over appointments. And there have been tensions over past years in some of these governor's administrations when they were Democratic governors uh, serving with a Democratic legislature. So it, maybe then it, it isn't a surprise that McCrory was so appointed. Uh, I remember when he was governor, you know, he would, he would show up uh, down at the Capitol and during the long sessions and say, now... I'm setting this deadline for when we're going to be out of here. And then he would leave and people would sort of chuckle behind him. You know, they never seemed to take him seriously, even the Republican legislature. Well, I wonder, I I don't think we're probably going to see a fifth term for Jim Hunt, but could this be a a comeback vehicle for uh, Pat McCrory? Um, Well, just recently, I I don't know if it could be because, you know, Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest has been pretty mum. We know he's running, but he did just release a statement about the I-77 tolls down in Mecklenburg County and said, you know, it started under, you know, a Purdue administration. It was, you know, signed off by a McCrory administration, and it's been screwed up by a Cooper administration, and we'll fix it under a Forrest administration. So, guys... I think he's running. Yeah, yeah. That's about the most explicit that's, he's been. About well, it, it, uh, uh, Tim Boyum, the uh, Spectrum News host, tweeted this, that it was, he managed in like one sentence to both uh, knock McCrory a little bit, who's a possible primary opponent for him in 2020, and subtly announce that he's definitely running. Yeah, it's, you know, maybe we do see a McCrory-Forrest matchup in a primary, but 2020 is still a long way away, and the General Assembly's got to, you know, kind of focus on what it's got to do first, so. Uh, Lauren, you wrote about a um, really kind of um, chilling case of a, a woman who was um, basically cyber-stalked and um, what might be happening, what might be changing in North Carolina law um, because of that. Uh, so tell us about Jacqueline Brzezinski. Yeah, so Jacqueline Brzezinski is a 32-year-old woman uh, living in Charlotte. She's a jewelry maker. Uh, and she, in about March of this year, started receiving some weird, sexually explicit, vulgar Uh, messages on her Instagram account and she just thought okay there's this weirdo messaging me I'm gonna block him move on nothing to worry about Um, but things kept happening and so eventually in June her sister received some anonymous text messages from a Google phone number essentially saying that Jacqueline's life would be ruined by Twitter now Jacqueline has a pretty decent sized following on Instagram because of her jewelry line Um, But she doesn't necessarily use Twitter a lot. In fact, when I talked to her uh, last week, she said that she hadn't used Twitter since September 2017. Now it's June 2018 when her sister receives this text message. Um, So, you know, after a couple of other instances, a former boss of her also received an email saying that, you know, Twitter would ruin Jacqueline's life. So she finally took to Twitter to find out that someone had stolen all of her photos from Instagram and was using them online to impersonate her um, and using, you know, 
racist and anti-Semitic language, not only talking about her, but others, and that there were other accounts interacting with this main impersonation account, um, you know, also using racist and anti-Semitic language about her and her family, and they eventually ended up doxing her, which means they took a ton of her private information, but it's all information you can essentially find online, so they use Google Map photos of her address, they printed her address, which if you live in North Carolina, you know is public information if you register to vote. Um, and they found old emails, old phone numbers, and they put this all up on Twitter for anyone to access. Uh, so she eventually you know, took to Twitter and asked you know, Twitter to take down these accounts. Um, and they said, oh, well, they, these accounts have 48 hours to comply with our parody rules. Parody accounts are usually used for celebrities, politicians, you know, to kind of poke fun at what they do. Um, Jacqueline, not a celebrity, not a politician. So she was confused by all this. Um, so instead, she threatened to sue for copyright infringement because the photos were taken from her works, uh, for, from her business's Instagram account. And that's when Twitter started kind of stepping in and saying, okay, yes, you know, we'll take down those photos, we'll take down those accounts. But when she, go, when she went to go report this harassment and stalking to the Charlotte-Mecklenburg Police Department, she hit a roadblock. Essentially, she was told because she didn't know who these people were, she couldn't necessarily file a police report because they would just list the suspect as John Doe. And, you know, she was very disheartened by that. She went back a couple of other times to try and also file a police report. But, you know, police officers told her there were nothing to do. North Carolina does have cyber stalking laws, but it's, it's vaguely written. So essentially, it's written to say any electronic communication or electronic mail could be considered a second-class misdemeanor, which is punishable up to like 60 days in jail. Um, and these people might be out of state, so there's an issue with that because no one's going to extradite you for 60 days in jail. That's, that's just not how the criminal justice system is going to work. Uh, so... When she noticed this loophole, because some people were interpreting interpreting it that, you know, social media doesn't count. You know, you're, you're expected this is how you communicate over social media. But according to legislative analysis from the General Assembly, those messages on social media do count as electronic messages, electronic mail. So there's, there's these differing opinions. And so now um, a couple of lawmakers from Charlotte, Senator Jeff Jackson and uh, Representative Chaz Beasley are, are looking into it because Jacqueline had originally reached out to Senator Jackson to try and see how they could change this law. She noticed this you know, blind spot essentially and she wanted to fix it. And Chaz Beasley has been working on what he calls like predatory laws. So he recently got some bipartisan support for a law addressing date rape and you know being drugged and then assaulted um, and so they're really looking into it to see where is this ambiguity in state law and how can we address it because there's also first amendment concerns we did have a cyberbullying law that got struck down by the state supreme court so there's this this balance that everyone's going to have to make because you can't restrict someone's constitutional right to free speech but also you know you need to find the way to protect that person online so there's it's it's going to be a complicated you know mess to go through when they eventually write this law but they are looking into it they've done the research and it's going to be open for interpretation and you know we'll we'll hopefully see a bill come January 2019 when the legislature you know comes back but there's no telling at this point are they looking to write a bill that would increase penalties to more than the 60 days that they would have to serve right now not to my knowledge right now, because mm. they're just trying to figure out how you could even write it. Mm. Because there's 
like I said, there's that line you have to draw because you do have your constitutional right to free speech, but you want to protect victims of online harassment and online stalking. So maybe they do increase penalties, and that's you know for the legislature to decide. But you know, the, there's a lot of what ifs right now because it's so early in the process. But I mean, her case just illustrates the need to kind of modernize our laws. Meantime, the um, police in Charlotte did end up looking into it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so she did eventually get into, into contact with the uh, cyber crimes unit, and they are investigating it. Um, last I heard, some accounts from Twitter were being deleted, but more, kept, more keep popping up, and so she's dealing with this on a regular basis still. Okay. Um, and uh, Colin, you have spent some time on the floor of the DMV in Clayton. So uh, this has become, in the last week, uh, basically a sudden tempest over the wait times at the DMV. Um, Always a pleasant experience in the best of times, but uh, lately, apparently, um, a real mess. So you went down there to uh, try it out for yourself. What what is causing these long lines? Yeah, so the uh, issue we've seen over the last few weeks is uh, lines that take... You know, in my case, it was about a three-hour wait to be served at the DMV. In other places, it's taking folks almost all day. They're having to wait out in the sun and the heat uh, because there's just not enough room for everybody to even wait in the waiting area of the actual building. Um, and the DMV commissioner has blamed this on two things. One is the impending real ID requirement, which is this federal rule that's going to take effect. Uh, for most folks, doesn't really apply to you until about uh, the end of 2020 when uh, it'll be required for domestic air travel. Uh, but basically sort of a beefed up form of ID. In order to get it, you have to go to the DMV with a bunch of different forms of identification. To get mine, I had to bring my passport, my social security card, my current driver's license, my vehicle registration in order to essentially have this certification on my license that tells the federal government that I am indeed who I say I am. Um, But that's uh, causing a lot more traffic at the DMV coupled with Uh, what's been described as sort of a normal seasonal uptick from uh, the back-to-school crowd. A lot of uh, teenagers uh, go in this time of year uh, while they're on summer break to try to get their learner's permits or their licenses, um, and those two things put together apparently has meant uh, a pretty big uh, shift in the amount of time uh, it takes to get through the DMV. Uh, I'll I'll note that the legislature nor the Cooper administration uh, had really done anything with the DMV this year. We've known the real ID requirement has been coming for a while, uh, but there hadn't been much of an effort to uh, staff up the DMV or add more locations. And apparently the the worst locations are in the urban areas like Raleigh, Durham, Cary, Charlotte. Um, You get a little bit further out um, and uh, it's a little bit less of a line. But even like I say, going to Clayton, I was uh, sitting there without the access to a chair for three hours. And during that entire process, I wrote my entire weekly column uh, about the experience of of being at the DMV. Uh, Since the column came out, we've heard uh, some this week about some uh, improvements that they're attempting to make. Uh, they've got about uh, 80 or 100 positions they're trying to fill fairly quickly, uh, some permanently, some temporarily to uh, keep up with uh, the wait times. Um, they're also asking other DOT employees to uh, volunteer a few hours to go hand out water bottles to people standing in line, I guess, so that they don't cause people to pass out and go into dehydration because they're stuck at the DMV all day. Um, so we'll see if, uh, if more developments uh, come along in that regard or if we continue to get long lines, but uh, certainly the the push towards real ID is going to probably increase crowds as we get closer and closer to that uh, 2020 deadline when people need it to fly. I will note if you're trying to avoid getting a real ID, if you have a passport and don't mind carrying that to the airport every time you fly or go to a federal building, um, that might save you the painful experience of getting your real ID. 
And you've got your ID now? I do, yeah. So yeah. now I'm, I'm uh, fully legit for uh, this uh, you know, three hours of sitting on the floor um, that I put into it. And it sounds like that wasn't the worst of it for some people. Yeah, no, I had it good because I got in the door immediately. Um, They are also encouraging people to to do appointments, but uh, that only works if you're planning way, way ahead. So if you've got a license that expires soon and you can't renew it online, um, you might be looking at an appointment time. I've heard some people say as late as January if they make one now um, or a location further away. I was in Clayton, and people who said they were in a hurry and were told they weren't going to get served today were being told to go to the DMV location in Mount Olive, which I think is at least an hour's drive from where we were sitting in Clayton. All right. Well, we will take a break, and we'll be right back with Headliner of the Week. Stay with us. Before today's Headliner of the Week, we wanted to share a quick message. Six years ago this month, a reporter named Austin Tice, who was freelancing for McClatchy newspapers and other media outlets, was detained while on assignment in Syria. On this anniversary, our One McClatchy company motto means more to us than ever as we at Domecast and the News and Observer stand firmly with the Tice family and hope for Austin's safe return. Here's his mother, Deborah, describing the battle to bring him home. We never would have imagined that we weren't going to know anything about where he is or who's holding him. How's that even possible? Across the country this month, McClatchy is raising flags and banners in Austin's honor, helping to bring attention to his plight. You can help, too, by tweeting with the hashtag FreeAustinTice or sharing a Facebook post in his name as we keep Austin in our thoughts today and every day. And now for Headliner of the Week. Headliner of the week, 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 headliner of the week. Who's hot? And we're back with headliner of the week. It's time to talk about the most important person, place, or thing in this week's news. Brian Murphy, special guest. You can go first. Uh, Who's your headliner of the week? I was fascinated by a story about fish games in North Carolina. Apparently a somewhat legal video game gambling uh, experience. I might have to check that out while I'm in town. All right. That's a story written by our colleague Anna Douglas about uh, fish games that are popping up in, um, I guess, like, what what, what kind of settings are these in? (laughs) How would you describe these? They look like, according to the video and the photos I saw, sort of in strip malls with almost handwritten signs. Um, it, it doesn't look on the up and up, but it seems very popular, very addictive, and people are losing a lot of money, it sounds like, playing these games. All right. Fish games in the hat for headliner of the week. Colin Campbell, who's your headliner? Well, I'm going with uh, not so much a person, more a little bit uh, inanimate, and that is the what has been termed the downtown Raleigh Homeless Hotel. The former, uh, apparently this was a, a one-story sort of storefront building. If you ever walk down Morgan Street, uh, just a block uh, west of the state capitol, you'll see this building. That's uh, essentially a, a boarded-up one-story building between a church and the state's old revenue building, um, but it uh, has this sort of odd design to where there's like a windowsill uh, that's just large enough for someone to put a sleeping bag in and sleep there. And for the longest time, almost any time you walked by there, you would see someone sleeping in there. Um, 
And uh, apparently there's some complaint, complaints about that, complaints about the smell of urine, and that caught the attention recently of State Senator Andy Wells, who's a real estate uh, developer himself out in the Hickory area. Uh, and he said he thought this was an example of uh, bad real estate management by state government, um, that uh, the state has done a poor job of uh, maintaining uh, properties that it owns or being willing to sell properties in high dollar real estate areas like downtown Raleigh when the uh, the need for the property is not there and there's perhaps a better way to, to manage employees outside. Uh, and he's used the homeless hotel as his prime example because this is a building when we start asking questions about it. Uh, turns out the state has owned it since the mid-80s, so my entire lifetime and then some, uh, this building has been empty, sitting in downtown Raleigh, falling apart, and owned by the state of North Carolina uh, since the luncheonette moved out uh, back in 1983 or 1985, somewhere in that uh, time frame. And so for, for that uh, impressive piece of uh, blight longevity, uh, I'm going with the homeless hotel, former luncheonette in downtown. That is some staying power for that prime real estate. Okay. Uh, the, um, what do we actually call this building? Technically, I think it's called the former JC's luncheonette. JC's luncheonette. All right. In the hat for headliner of the week. Lauren Horsch, who's your headliner of the week? This is an odd one. I don't really, I'm not, I don't even know how to go into it, but I guess spanking or ending the practice of spanking. Um, I'm going with spanking this week. <laughs> I just, so this is a story that was first re reported by the Robesonian down in Robeson County. Um, but on Tuesday, the Robeson County Board of Education uh, voted six to five to end the practice of corporal punishment in schools. Now, up until Tuesday, there were only two counties in North Carolina that allowed some form of corporal punishment, mostly spanking, um, in schools, and that was Robeson and Graham. So Graham County is now the only county that still has this policy on the books. And, you know, this stems from 2013, I do believe, when the North Carolina State Board of Education um, came out against spanking and paddling students, but allowed local school systems to decide what they wanted. And, well, here we are. That's all I got for you. <laughs> all right. Spanking down to one county in North Carolina. Isn't Graham County also the only dry county in North Carolina? There's a couple You can't outliers. have a drink, but you can get spanked. Come to Graham County. <laughs> <laughs> what are you um, doing? Yeah, are you gonna, I'm going to leave it, guys. Yeah, yeah. Andy, go. You can leave that. Uh, Andy... Andy Spay, who's your headliner? How am I supposed to follow that? Speaking of dry counties, my <laughs> headliner is the ABC Commission, which controls all liquor sales in North Carolina. Except in Graham County, I Except guess. Except in Graham County, which has apparently no ABC store um, or alcohol whatsoever. Uh, it, moving on. Uh, <laughs> State Auditor Beth Wood recently found that uh, the ABC Commission had wasted uh, $13 million dollars. Uh, in government funds through just suspicious contracts and things like that. Uh, today, 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 <laughs> Michael Herring, the ABC leader, resigned. Uh, oh, yesterday. This is today's Thursday. Yesterday was Wednesday. Resigned, uh, but he did not admit any guilt. Uh, he said that he basically called Beth Wood fake news and asked, uh, where, <laughs> where are the people? Hold on. Where is his? Where is his? Uh, quote it says uh who is going to fact check beth wood uh which i am definitely not qualified to do though i do some work with politifact but uh he took no responsibility the abc chairman took no responsibility there's all this money that was wasted and no one and it's no one's fault apparently so with that uh the abc commission 
losing or wasting $13 million, but keeping a tight grip on all the liquor we all desire so much. They are my, uh, my uh, headliner of the week. All right. So ABC Commission in the hat for headliner of the week, uh, the target of a very unfavorable audit. Um, so I'm going to go with Fish Games uh, and Brian Murphy's uh, suggestion for headliner of the week. I was ready to vote for spanking. <laughs> I say we spank the people that were, you know, <laughs> defrauding no, 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 people. No, no, no. Okay. I veto that. No, no. I'm sorry. I'm using my executive authority here and vetoing that. I'm just going to stay away from that one um, and, and go with the much safer one uh, of gambling. Uh, so uh, Fish Games is our headliner this week, and that means Brian Murphy is our winner. Uh, and that's it for Headliner of the Week. For Brian Murphy, Colin Campbell, Lauren Horsch, and Andy Spey, Uh, We'll see you again next week on Domecast. You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.